Isaiah chapter 25 verses 1 to 12, New International Version. Lord, you are my God. Lord, I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made, made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigners stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like the storm from driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of the foreign foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is stilled on this mountain the lord almighty will prepare with is the rich food for all people a banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people the sheet that covers all nations he will swallow up death forever the sovereign lord will wipe away the tears is from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Miles. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain but moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the ma- manure manure they will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim god will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands he will bring down your high fortified fortified walls and lay them low he will bring them down to the ground to the very dust well uh how cute are those two boys reading the niv too good to see good to see uh, I'm going to be honest, I, I love that video, but I have no idea what passage they were reading. I couldn't understand a word, so I'm hoping that we're in the right passage here uh, today, but I'm sure we'll be fine. Uh, and I think it's about time that with five days out from Christmas, five sleeps out from Christmas, I think it's about time that we just cut to the chase. We've been doing this series on the promise of Christmas, and, and every week someone will get up here and they'll talk about what the best part about Christmas is. They'll talk about what they love about Christmas, and they'll say things like the carols. And don't get me wrong, carols are good. I really enjoyed our carols last night. Shout out for those guys. But I don't know, you can get a bit over carols, can't you? Presents, people will say presents as well or Christmas decorations or the cricket you'll hear the cricket a lot of guys will say that but I do think it's about high time we are all just honest with one another here tonight and acknowledge that the best part of Christmas is by far and away the food food glorious food 
The older I get, the, the more convinced I, be, I am that food is truly the best bit about Christmas because presents can be hit or miss. You might get a good present. You might get a really bad present as well. And plus, it's not like you just get given presents. You have to go out and buy presents for other people too, which is kind of lame. And I, as I said, carols are, our carols were great, but they can get annoying, especially when they're constantly on repeat in the shops. And I do love cricket as much as the next guy, unless the next guy is Asher Robbins. I don't love it as much as him. Because cricket is great, but I'm just going to say it, there's too much cricket on. There's too much cricket on TV. I've got one fan down here. Too much cricket. I do like it, but it's too much at the moment. There's Big Bash and Tests and One Dayers. And... But food, Christmas food never fails to disappoint. The Christmas ham, oh, so good. Christmas turkey with stuffing, how good is stuffing? The fruitcake, Christmas pudding, prawns, roast potatoes, gravy, crunchy noodle salad. You know, I thought crunchy noodle salad was an Asian dish, but it's not. Apparently they, they, they don't eat it. It's an Australian thing. Mind blown. And of course, the best bit is crackling. How good is crackling? I love fatty, salty pigskin. It is so good. Feasting on food, really, it's the real point of Christmas, isn't it? Except food at Christmas time is about more than that, isn't it? When you stop and think about it, Christmas lunch is actually about more than food because you could eat all of that food itself and by yourself and it wouldn't be the same, would it? And you could have a great Christmas lunch just eating baked beans on toast if you've got the right people around you. Because as great as food is, it's actually there for a higher purpose, isn't it? Food is just an excuse to, to sit around the table with the ones you love, the ones who are close to you, our families and our friends, and celebrate together. That's what feasts are about, aren't they? They're about celebrating birthday feasts, wedding feasts, Christmas feasts, they're, they're about more than food. They're about being together with the ones that we love and celebrating, rejoicing with them. That's one of the reasons that Christmas can be really hard and it'll be hard for some of you guys, particularly our international brothers and sisters this year because, well, it's a time where you might be apart from the ones you love. Or, or it could be that those relationships have become really complex and messy. Christmas, Christmas can be a hard time where we feel the effect of that more acutely. Because Christmas is meant to be a celebration, isn't it? It's meant to be a wonderful time. It's meant to be a time with food and family and friends. It's meant to be a time of togetherness and celebration. That's the real point of feasting, isn't it? And that's why it's actually no surprise when God, in the Bible, when He talks about salvation, he, he promises that it will be a great and glorious feast. That's how God talks about salvation all throughout the Bible. And, and you see it in, a passage, in the passage that was read out for us earlier in Isaiah 25. Just look there again at what Isaiah says in verse 1. He says, Lord... You are my God, and I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. 
You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. But you silence the uproar of foreigners. And as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And the Lord has spoken. This is just an incredibly wonderful part of the Bible, isn't it? And, and you can see there in Isaiah 25 that this is all about God's salvation. See, Isaiah 25, it, it's meant to be this word of incredible comfort and hope for the nation of Israel. In the time that this was written, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel, they were in serious trouble. They had been called by God into a promised land, a land where they would be His people, where they would live under His blessing, where He might be their God. But instead of loving God, instead of following Him, their hearts were turned away to the other gods, the, the idols of the nations around them. And so God, in judgment, raised up those nations to come and to conquer Israel. And it's into that context, into that context of the judgment of, of God that Isaiah 25 appears, which must have just been such an incredible source of joy for those who were oppressed by their enemies. For what God promises here is that He's going to rescue His people. That's what he says, that he's going to make the enemy cities a pile of rubble. He's going to restore Israel back to him and his love once again. And on that day, on that day that he does this, God says, there will be a magnificent feast. There will be rich food for all people, the best of meats, the finest of wines. God is promising here a time of great feasting for his people when he comes to rescue them from the hands of their enemies. And yet, if you look closely, there's actually something more going on here, isn't there? There's something bigger at play in Isaiah 25 than you might first notice. Because look again at what it is God actually promises in Isaiah 25 verse 7. He says, On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. There's something bigger here, isn't there, than just the rescue of Israel from their enemies that God is promising. Something much, much greater. God here in Isaiah 25 is promising to swallow up death forever. 
the shroud that enfolds all people. He's promising a time that there'll be no more reason to cry because death will be done away with once and for all. And did you notice there, it's not just for Israel either. It's for all peoples, it's for all nations, all of the earth God is talking about here. Isaiah 25 is an incredibly startling promise from God, which would have just blown the peoples of Israel's mind, right? God here is promising a day not just when He will rescue them from the hands of their enemies. He's promising a day when He will destroy death for all people. He's promising a day of great and glorious feasting when He comes to destroy the curse of death that is over all mankind. I don't know how how you guys think about death, but I don't think our society really thinks about it the way that Isaiah does. And it's hard for us too, because for a lot of us here, we're we're quite young. Death seems a long way off. I don't think our society thinks about death like a curse very much. Or at least we try to pretend that that's not what death is. We talk about death as if it's a natural part of life. You don't need to fear it. It's just, it's just the next step in our journey. You, you're moving on to a better place. That's the way we talk about death, isn't it? But I think our actions betray us at this point. Think about how many billions of dollars are spent every year trying to help us live longer. For many of you, your, your whole careers, your uni degree, your life is going to be about this. Trying to hold back the inevitable thing that we all know is coming. And think about the way we, we hide death away, don't we? We tuck it out of sight in our nursing homes and, and in our hospitals because we just, we just don't want to deal with it. And yet, death It's the one most unavoidable thing in this life, isn't it? Death is all around us. And you know it when it comes close to you, don't you? When it breaks into your life. In those moments, we really do see what a massive charade this all is. The pain of losing a loved one. The heartache of watching those around you, your parents, your grandparents, as they slowly start to decay. The tragedy of someone being taken too young before they even get a chance of life, that's a pain you never escape, do you? And it's a pain you must learn to live with. And we might try to pretend that death is natural. We might talk about it like it's just the next phase of life, right? But deep down, we know that's not true, don't we? All is not well in this world. It's under a curse, the curse of death. You know, the Bible tells us exactly why that is. In the Bible, we see that the, 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 the reason there is death is because of our sin. See, it is God who created this world, isn't it? The author of life. It is God who made us all with a purpose. He made us to know Him, to enjoy Him, to live for Him. In fact, that's what real life is when you think about it. To be truly alive, to be really living, 
is to be in relationship with the God who gave you life. And yet, who can honestly say they live that way? We've all turned our backs on God, haven't we? We've all rebelled against Him. We have lived our lives as if we are our own gods, enjoying the good gifts of this world that God has made and designed, but, but showing no gratitude, giving no credit to the God who designed it for us. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It, it's more than just the wrong things that we do. It's a heart that does not give us stuff about the God who made us. And that is why death exists. As we push away the author of life, as we turn our backs on him, we lose that very life that in his goodness he gave us. Death is more than just physical, isn't it, here at this point? To be dead is to be cut off from God, under his judgment, destined for his wrath. That's the curse of death we are under. And it's only fair, isn't it? Because that's what sin deserves. And yet, the amazing thing that Isaiah 25 says here, the, the, the amazing thing that Isaiah 25 is talking about here is that, well, God is going to come and deal with death. In Isaiah 25, you, you get this beautiful little glimpse, right, into just how merciful God really is. The God who, made, who gave you the very breath of life is so incredibly kind. As he promises here, a time when he will lift the curse of death, when he will wipe away our tears, when there'll be no great mourning anymore because he's going to remove the disgrace of sin. See, God here in Isaiah 25 is promising a time of great feasting that will come when he pours out his salvation upon all mankind. And the wonderful thing is that for us, here and now, that time of great feasting has already begun. It began the the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, the whole of history changed in a radical way, right? Because Jesus came into this world with a very clear purpose. Jesus came into this world to die and rise again to bring forgiveness for our sins. You know, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he actually shared one last meal with his disciples. And I guess you could talk about it like a feast, right? Except that this wasn't a feast of rejoicing. This was, this was a much more sombre occasion. In just a little while, Jesus was about to be arrested, put on trial for a crime, found, found guilty of tri- crimes that he hadn't committed, and then they would bring him out They would ridicule him, they would flog him and then they would drive nails into his hands and hang him on a cross. And knowing all of this was about to take place, Jesus sits down at the table with his followers and look at what he says. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. 
Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus knows that he's about to die. But he wants his disciples to know this is no accident. This is not a mistake that's happening here. No, Jesus' death has always been a part of God's plan. Because it's through Jesus' death, it's through his body being broken, it's through his blood being poured out that God brings about forgiveness of sins. As Jesus hung upon that cross 2,000 years ago, as he really walked on this earth and hung upon that real physical cross, he was dying in our place for our sins for the way that we have rebelled against God. As his body is broken, as his blood is poured out, Jesus was facing God's anger for your sin, for my sin. He was tasting death, God's judgment, the curse, on our behalf. And what that means for us is forgiveness. That rather than us facing God's judgment for our sin, we might have forgiveness, mercy, relationship with God again. We might have life again. The thing that separates us from God is removed, right? We might know Him, enjoy Him, live for Him again. See, Jesus was dying that we might feast with God. Not just here and now, but into eternity. For just as three days later, God raised Jesus to life again, proving that once and for all he had power over death, God has promised to raise us to life again, with him in his kingdom forever. In Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus offers to anyone who wants it. Any of you who want it. Jesus is offering you a place at the feast of the table of God in heaven. Heaven will be this eternal party, this eternal celebration, this great banquet, this feast, right? Not on food, but on God on his love, on his goodness, on his salvation. And this is all possible only because Jesus has died for our sins. What Jesus wants to offer you all is a feast of forgiveness. And I don't don't know about you, but that is a real challenge to the way I usually think about God. It challenges me to rethink just how lavish God's forgiveness is. I've been a Christian for about 12 years now and I'm kind of tempted to see God's salvation as less like a feast and more like bread and water. Sure, I know Jesus died for my sins. Yes, God has forgiven me, but, but I'm tempted to think that, that He does not really enjoy forgiving me that much. I mean, He does it, but He's not that happy about it. 
He's kind of like a host, right, at a party who notices how much everyone is eating and, and constantly divides up the bill in their head. He, he portions out forgiveness, just a little morsel at a time, a, a tiny mouthful here, a little sip there, and it, it's only a matter of time before he comes and he takes my plate away altogether. Because even knowing that everything we've spoken about tonight is true, I mean, I still sin all the time. I'm still greedy. I'm still lustful. I'm still angry. And so I often picture God as sitting up the end of the, of the table, just waiting to whip my plate away and say, there's no more for you. No more forgiveness for you. But that's not Isaiah 25. That's not feasts. That's not what they're like, are they? Feasts are lavish. Feasts are extravagant. And God's mercy, God's forgiveness is the most abundant feast you could ever have. And my sin is great. Don't get me wrong. But God's mercy is always greater. God delights to pour out his forgiveness. Now, of course, that's not an excuse to just go about sinning, but what it is, it's a wonderful comfort that you are never too far from the love of God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is a seat for you at God's eternal banquet because Jesus has died for your sins. So, why don't you just come? Why don't you just come and feast this Christmas on the salvation of God? It costs you nothing. It's totally free. Jesus paid the price so you can sit at the table, right? Why would you not take hold of that? Do you hunger for forgiveness? Are you weighed down by your guilt and your shame? Do you feel suffocated by your sin against God? Why fight that anymore? Why carry that burden on your shoulders anymore when Jesus is offering to carry it for you? Come, put your trust in Jesus this Christmas. Confess your sins to him. Revel in his mercy. Rejoice in his salvation. For he has prepared a place for you at God's eternal feast. Why don't I pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for your incredible mercy, your incredible grace, that even though we have all sinned against you, even though we are under the curse of death, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped into this world to bear our sin, to take our curse, to die in our place, that we might be forgiven. Father, we thank you so much that he brings us back into relationship with you. And we thank you that no matter what we do, no matter how great our sin, your forgiveness is always greater. And we pray for those of us tonight who are carrying a burden, who are feeling the guilt and the shame from our actions, from our words, from our deeds and from our heart. Father, we pray that you would help us to come to you, 
and know that you have prepared an incredibly abundant feast of forgiveness through Jesus. Help us to believe that and to trust in him. Help us to cast our sin upon him. And we are so thankful that we will be with you in eternity at your great banquet forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.